Well, we are focusing on the book of Amos. So if you want to take your Bibles and turn to Amos chapter 6, Amos's third and final sermon here, uh, it comes in the form of a lament, a funeral dirge. God is basically mourning the wickedness of his people and the judgment that is soon to come upon them. And Amos presents this lament to them as a warning against Israel, against their false priests and their idolatrous king, Jeroboam. Jeroboam, the king of Israel, the the priest system that he set up, and especially the wealthy residents of Samaria, they believed they were at peace with the enemy nations that surrounded them. And they dismissed any suggestion that Assyria would become a, a threat and would come after them and bring destruction upon them. But through this sermon, Amen is revealing to them that the enemies they need to fear aren't the enemies around them. They're the enemies that come from within. I quoted him last week. C.H. Spurgeon said, Beware of no man more than yourself. We carry our worst enemies within us. And truly we can be our own worst enemies. I want to quote again from the Apostle Paul who wrote in Romans 7, So I find this law at work, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work within me. What a wretched man am I. Who will rescue me? So Paul understood this inner conflict. And and last week we looked at the first woe that Amos brought uh, to Israel and to Judah. A woe that pointed out that first enemy within. And that was the enemy of ignorance. Israel had been guilty of what I think is willful ignorance. They were willfully ignorant of God's wrath. And therefore of their need to repent. They were ignorant of true worship. They They had exchanged a vibrant Worship and relationship with God with empty ritualistic religion. They were ignorant of the ways of the Lord, of what it means to be righteous in their character and just in their conduct. And they were ignorant of the works of the Lord, having forgotten God's mighty acts in the past as well as their own shortcomings. And that resulted in a self-righteousness and an arrogant self-reliance that saw no need for God's mercy and grace. They would soon find out that ignorance is not bliss. It's bondage. So Amos 6 concludes this message that he began back in in chapter 5 with three more inner enemies which we have to recognize, combat, and defeat if we are to thrive as the people of God in this world of uncertainty and and fear. So the, the second enemy, we looked at the first last week, the second enemy is the enemy of indifference. The enemy of indifference. Let's look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Go to Calneh and look at it. And go from there to great Hamath. And then go down to Gath in Philistia. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? You put off the evil day and bring near a reign of terror. The Lord calls the citizens of Judah and Israel complacent. Especially the wealthy and the powerful. They are indifferent to the warnings of God's imminent judgment coming at the hands of the Syrian Empire. They're confident in their fortresses. They're living carefree lives of pleasure, drinking bowlfuls of wine at their high society 
parties. Amos calls them the notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. These are the elites of society, the movers, the shakers, the wealthy, the powerful, the decision makers. But they were nobody's moral superiors. They were godless, corrupt, violent. They perverted the very system of justice that they purported to uphold. They were speaking out of both sides of their mouth. We call that being a hypocrite. They were hypocrites. They pretended to be religious, but their real religion was idolatry. He talks about Mount Samaria and Zion. Those are both hills, the the capitals of those lands. The the mountain of Samaria, the capital of Israel. Mount Zion is where Jerusalem is, the capital of Judah. And these hills were, were pretty easy to defend. They were strategically located. And Amos is saying you're putting your confidence in your military might. You're putting your confidence in your defense systems, in your political shrewdness. But this is a false hope because it ignores justice and righteousness, and the spiritual realities that they refuse to see. So as an illustrative warning, Amos pointed to some neighboring cities who also thought that they had great defenses, who also thought they had wonderful strategies, they were invulnerable, but they were placing their false hope in military might and politicians. Cities like Kalna, who fell already to the Assyrians up north of them in Syria, or Hamath, who was defeated by Israel's king Jeroboam, or Gath, who was conquered by the Judah, uh, armies of Judah. Did Israel and Judah really think that they were any better? That they were any more invincible than these cities? Now today, God might call us in a similar fashion to look at the once mighty mainline Protestant denominations in this country whose churches are closing their doors for the last time at an alarming rate. There's been a lot written about the demise of the Episcopal Church, the Lutheran Church, the Presbyterian Church USA, the United Methodist Church. One article I read asked, this was the the headline, Has the Last Episcopalian Been Born? A similar one asked, How many Easter's does the Episcopal Church have left? Of course, we know the United Methodist Church is currently experiencing a massive denominational split. So we can look at those. But, like Israel and Judah, Southern Baptists cannot afford to be complacent. Yet there is indifference today among pastors and congregations who look at those other churches, those other denominations, and criticize them for being too liberal for not preaching the whole counsel of God's Word, for emphasizing social justice causes over evangelism and missions and church planting. And that may all be very well true. And I think a lot of that is true. But let's look at ourselves. The vast majority of Southern Baptist churches today are either plateaued or declining. Yes, we may not be seeing the kind of generational collapse that the mainline denominations are experiencing. Yet, but our baptism numbers are dropping year after year after year. Are we indifferent to the Great Commission? Are we complacent about winning the lost? Why are we losing so many of our young people to an increasingly secular and progressive culture? Why do so many young people graduate from high school and graduate from church never to return? Perhaps it's our overconfidence in programs and our indifference to discipleship in the homes. 
Could that be a contributing factor at least? In Revelation 3.17, Jesus is speaking to the church of Laodicea, and he says, You say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Like I said last week about the enemy of ignorance, we bury our heads in the sand. We put off the day of evil, as Amos says here in verse 3, all the while we are bringing nearer and nearer a reign of terror. We falsely put our hope in our wealth, in our programs and activities. We think that, well, you know, if my kids make good grades, if they don't get arrested or killed, if they're moderately successful in sports or band or some other extracurricular activity, if they go to youth group on occasion, then I've done a good job. But we fail to realize how wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked we really are. We fail to realize how empty and powerless our priorities, efforts, and sources of false hope often can be. And I I think that's what we're seeing on the news right now. I think what we're seeing on the news right now is a reign of terror because we've put off the evil day, because we've been complacent and indifferent. Cancel culture, mob rule, anarchy, human trafficking, a growing celebration of immorality and filth that would make previous generations scandalized. It's because of our indifference, church. It's because we've kicked the proverbial can down the road. We've brought on a reign of terror. Thankfully, I don't think it's too late. I think that this ship can still be turned around. We can still steer the Southern Baptist ship clear of impending disaster. We can still steer the ship of First Baptist Thompson in the right way. We can still shine the light of God's truth into the darkness, and as the salt of the earth, we can still stave off further cultural decay around us. But we have to wake up. We need to pull our heads up out of the sand and look around. We need to lift our heads and our hands up in prayer. We need to stand up and speak up and reach out. We can no longer afford to be the so-called silent majority. You know, maybe God has allowed us to face this pandemic this year and the social unrest and the economic uncertainty. Maybe He's allowed us to experience that for this very reason. You know, maybe it's no coincidence that all this has happened in the year 2020. He's helping us to focus our vision. He's helping us to see better the reality around us and our need to change and the fact that Jesus Christ is our only hope. Doesn't God often use trial and tragedy to help us see more clearly? You know, and it's not just the church. Lost people can be indifferent to their need for God's saving grace. Maybe this morning you're listening and you know that you've been putting your confidence in your goodness. And the good things that you do or the bad things you don't do. You've been putting your hope in your success, in your religiousness. It's kind of like Israel trusting in fortresses. I pray this morning that you would awaken to the reality of your sin and God's wrath and that you would cry out today to Jesus for Him to forgive your sins and make you new. But ignorance and indifference aren't the only enemies from within that we need to face. There's also the enemy of indulgence. Let's look at verses 4 through 7. 
You lie on beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions. But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. So here in Amos' sermon, God calls out Israel and Judah also for their indulgent lifestyles, which leaves no room for spiritual things, no room for spiritual disciplines or concerns. They've been living for their own pleasure and not for the glory of God. You might remember back in chapter 2, the wealthy and powerful in Judah were condemned for perverting justice. They were taking the coat off of the poor, taking their outer coat, literally suing them for the shirt off their back. And then they were using these coats as mats in the pagan shrines to do unspeakable acts upon. The law of Moses specifically forbade people from taking your outer coat overnight as a pledge, a surety. Because that might be the only shelter from the elements that person has that night. And if it's a cold night, as it often gets in Israel at nighttime, it can get very, very cold. You've got a lot of mountains and high elevation and and, and a lot of wind that's coming in there, that the elements can be quite harsh. And if you take that outer coat, it could cost that person their life. So the comparison here is stark. While the poor may only have a coat or a mat to sleep on, the wealthy were lounging on their couches. They were sleeping in their beds adorned with ivory. By the way, archaeologists have discovered in the area around Samaria lots of ornate ivory carvings. They call them Samaritan ivories. And so we can actually look at pictures of those and see how ornate they were. They were symbols of great wealth. Amos here describes elegant feasts of lamb and veal with an abundance of wine. He says they're drinking wine by the bowlfuls. That's a lot of wine. They're listening to their music and playing their music on their harps wearing expensive perfumed lotions. In other words, they're enjoying all the fineries of life that their wealth and their positions of power could afford. They were living it up. Today, we might think of political fundraising dinners that cost thousands of dollars a plate that often restrict the access of normal people from being able to speak to our elected officials. We might think of the red carpet and the billion, the, the million dollar dresses uh, of these celebrities uh, at the Oscars. We might think of the high society mansions of Beverly Hills or the apartments of Midtown Manhattan. And all the while, just outside the door are people who are starving or working hard but barely making ends meet. People who have no time to lounge around on couches. People who can't afford to sleep on beds of ivory. Now, I have to clarify that there's nothing inherently wrong with enjoying good food. Amen? I mean, we are Baptists after all. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with enjoying good music or having get-togethers with your family and friends. David was both wealthy and a musician. He's mentioned right here. Yet David was called a man after God's own heart. Abraham, called the friend of God, was a very wealthy Man. So there's nothing wrong with that. But in Amos's day, much like today, these luxuries had become a fatal distraction. The people used their wealth and their pleasure as a screen, as a way to keep themselves separated from the needs around them. 
as an excuse to keep their heads buried in the sand. It kept them distracted from the real problems the nation was facing. It kept them distracted and cut off from the needs of their neighbors. As Amos says, they were not grieving over the ruin of Joseph, meaning of the people of Israel. They were too busy having a good time partying. It's sort of like the expression, Nero playing the fiddle while Rome burned. That's what they were doing. Playing the fiddle, drinking their wine, having their parties, lounging on their couches while the nation around them went to ruin. Warren Wiersbe wrote this, When nations get pleasure mad, it's a sign that the end is near. I like that quote. Pleasure mad. It's an apt description of 8th century Israel and Judah, specifically Jerusalem and Samaria. It's an apt description of the Roman Empire. You know, with their bread and their circuses, keeping the people fed and entertained, all the while their culture decayed from within. And I think it's a very apt description of our society today. Pleasure mad. Paul warns Timothy about what people are going to be like in the last days before Christ returns. And I want us to listen to this and take heed, because I believe this describes our nation and our culture perfectly. Listen to what Paul writes. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. Are we closing our eyes to the reality of the ruin of America? Now make no mistake, our enemy, the devil, he wants us to be distracted by sports and hobbies, by Black Friday and Amazon Prime Day deals, by pop culture musicians and movie stars and all the celebrity gossip. He wants us to prioritize buying bigger houses and newer cars and the latest fashion and the most high-tech Gadgets. He wants us to spend all of our attention and energy and conversations on political division and Facebook arguments where we talk at each other and past each other, not with each other. He wants people to think that virtue signaling accomplishes something. That it somehow makes you more morally pure or that you can use hashtags to affect real change. He wants us to condemn each other based on who we vote for, what kind of clothes we wear, how much money we make, or whether or not we wear a mask. But in reality, as Paul said to Timothy, people are just loving themselves and their money. They're just boasting, proud of their social activism, abusive to those who think differently, disrespectful of their elders and disobedient to their parents. They're ungrateful for their blessings. They're unholy in their thinking, without love in their interaction with others, unforgiving of one another's faults and failings. They're slanderous, without self-control, brutal to their perceived enemies, not lovers of the good. They are treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, not lovers of God. 
They may think they have a form of godliness, but they don't. They deny its power. And we would do well to follow Paul's advice and have nothing to do with such people. Better yet, we should strive to not be such people. And I'm sad to say that I see a lot of people who claim to be Christians that fit those descriptions right there. Or as Jesus described in Luke 21, 34, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day, meaning the day of judgment, the day of Christ's return, will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. And so Jesus says, be always on the watch and pray. You know, people today talk about being woke. You've heard that phrase, being woke. Which is supposed to mean that you're, you know, you're aware of social injustice around you, particularly racial injustice. And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, that's what Amos is calling the people of Israel and Judah to do. That God has always called His people to open their eyes and to wake up to the injustice and the sin around them. To open their eyes to God's wrath and their need to repent. The wokeness has become its own cultural distraction. It divides people, doesn't unite anybody. It denies the real problem of sin and instead focuses on politics as if that's the end-all, be-all problem and solution that we face today. Woke ideology is too focused on virtue signaling and hashtags and often reflects Paul's description of the world here far more than Jesus' description of the kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount. But make no mistake, Jesus is knocking on the door of our church. He's knocking on the door of our country. He's knocking on the door of your heart. And He's saying, wake up. Be on your guard. Watch and pray. Can we? Can we answer His knock? Can we, like the psalmist, say, indignation grips me because of the wicked who have forsaken your law? Can we say streams of tears flow from my eyes for your law is not obeyed? I believe that we're not gripped with indignation or weeping over the wickedness around us because we're too busy chasing after the same things the wicked are chasing after. We behave too much like the pagans who believe their life it is made up of what they wear and what they eat and what they drink and how much money they make and how many barns they can build and fill up. If instead we would pursue the kingdom of God and His righteousness, might we care more and pray more and do more about the sin and the injustices and the needs around us? Maybe if we would wake up and watch and pray. We, like Jesus, would see the masses around us lost and wandering like sheep without a shepherd. And we would have compassion upon them. The enemies of the Great Commission, the enemies of great compassion, are ignorance, indifference, indulgence. And finally, it's the enemy of impudence. Impudence. That's a big word. I know. So consider this your word for the day today. All right? An impudent person 
is someone who is prideful, cocky, flouting authority, disregarding others. That's impudence. Impudent people are so full of themselves, they leave no room for the consideration of others, much less for the consideration of the things of God. And that's how Amos describes Israel and Judah in the end of this chapter. Let's look at verse 8. The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself. The Lord Almighty declares. So that tells you, wake up and pay attention. When it says the sovereign Lord, that's the Lord of hosts. That means the God of the angel armies. And it says he has sworn by himself. In other words, he is staking what he's saying right now on his reputation as the Lord God Almighty. Pay attention to what he says. I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. If ten men are left in one house, they too will die. And if a relative who is to burn the bodies comes to carry them out of the house and asks anyone still hiding there, is anyone with you? And he says no, then he will say, Hush, we must not mention the name of the Lord. For the Lord has given the command, and he will smash the great house into pieces and the small house into bits. The horses run on the rocky crags. Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. You who rejoice in the conquest of Lodabar and say, Did we not take Karnaim by our own strength? For the Lord God Almighty declares, I will stir up a nation against you, O house of Israel, that will oppress you all the way from Lebo Hamath to the valley of the Arabah. Pride of Jacob. There's a play on words here. Often in the Old Testament, pride of Jacob was a reference to the promised land. This just meant the promised land. But here, God uses it to highlight how Israel has put more confidence in God's gift than in the God who gives. They've put their confidence so much in the land that they think, we're here to stay. Nothing can ever move us. We're Israel. We're God's chosen. Nothing bad's going to happen to us. God's people became entitled, demanding, self-reliant. And so the Lord has grown to abhor the very land He gave them, the land of promise, has become a land of pride. Jesus confronted the Pharisees for the very same thing, for being impudent. In Luke 16, 15, He says, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. But God knows your hearts. What people value is highly detestable in God's sight. Israel and Judah were guilty of boasting, of valuing highly their fortresses, their cities, their mansions, their luxurious couches, their ivory beds, their parties with bowlfuls of wine. And God says, I hate that stuff. I hate all of it. I detest it. I abhor it. He couldn't use more stronger words than he used there about how he feels. What about us? Are we not guilty of being impudent at times? Listen, impudence can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. James, in in our New Testament reading this morning, James describes our impudence at making plans without any regard for God. We say, hey, I'm going to go do this, and I'm going to go do that, and I'm going to make this money here, and all this is going to be great. And we don't take any time to stop and even think 
if it's the Lord's will. And look at the last verse there of James chapter 3. That last verse. Go to the next slide there. I'm not going to read that again. What does it say about that kind of boasting? About that kind of making plans and just, and just plowing through life with no regard for God and His will, thinking that somehow you're in control and you're calling the shots? What does it call that kind of boasting? Evil. Another strong word. Evil. It's impudence. Another example, the cancel culture we see today is an example of impudence because the cancel culture mentality assumes that these people somehow have the moral superiority to ruin your life, to get you fired, to have you digitally erased from existence because you dare say or do something that went against the group think of the day. And often, even if what that person said or did was abhorrent, It's often taken out of context or it's an isolated incident or it's something that happened years if not decades ago, but it doesn't matter. You must be exiled from the community. You must be the sacrifice to make everybody else feel good. It's impudence. It's evil. Along those same lines, are we not being impudent, excuse me, when we refuse to forgive someone for wronging us? Well, at the same time, we expect God to forgive us? Is that not impudence? Is that not evil? Is it not impudent to thumb our nose at our Creator and say that we know better than He does how life works best? That we, not He, gets to define what marriage is? That that we, not He, gets to decide what is a sin and what is not? That we, not He, gets to determine our identity? As if we are our own creators? As if we are self-made people? Psalm 103 says... Differently, know ye that the Lord, He is God. It is He that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people, and the sheep of His pasture. That's the key. That's the key to defeating this enemy. It's humility and a fear of the Lord. When we remember that He is God, and that we are not, that keeps us humble. Amen? When we recognize that God is our creator and our sustainer, it keeps us dependent on His goodness and grace, His wisdom and strength, not our own. When we remember that He is the shepherd and we are just the sheep of His pasture, it keeps our feet on the paths of righteousness, not wandering off on our own. Now, unfortunately, Israel and Judah, and I know this comes as a shock and a surprise, they didn't combat their inner enemy. They did not heed Amos' warnings. And the chapter ends with the Lord describing the judgment that's going to come. And he describes it as death and destruction and disgrace and defeat. That's what's coming. And I just want to say a couple of things about these last few verses. Amos asks some interesting rhetorical questions there in verse 12. Do horses run on rocky crags? Of course not. That would be foolish. They could break a leg and die. Yeah, horses do not run on rocky crags. Does a farmer plow on the rocky crags with his oxen? No, of course not. That would be pointless. You can't grow anything there. It would ruin the plow. And again, the ox could break a leg and die. Why does he ask these questions? The point is that none of these would make any sense. A farmer and a horse would not do that. That's illogical. It's foolish. And so is Israel's refusal to heed God's warning and repent. Instead, 
They turn justice into poison. They take the sweet fruit of righteousness and they make it bitter. It makes no sense. It's foolish. It's counterproductive. What about us? Will we pursue the foolish and wicked things of this world? Will we continue in our ignorance and our indifference and our indulgence and impudence? Or will we listen to what God says? Will we wake up and watch and pray? Will we turn from our wicked ways and cry out to heaven that He would heal our, our, our land and forgive us of our sins? Or will we cling to our pride and our pleasure and suffer the judgment of God? Listen, nowhere in God's Word is it promised United States of America another day. Nowhere. Nowhere in God's Word does it promise First Baptist Thompson will be open and functioning this time next year. Nowhere. Will we listen? Will we heed what God says? This morning, I want to encourage you to let go of your pride. Let go of your sin. Let go of your past. Turn to faith in Jesus. He wants to wash away your sins and cleanse you of your guilt. He wants to wipe away your tears and take the broken pieces of your life and put them back together. He wants to give you a fresh start if you will turn to Him in humility, in dependence. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. If you've never done that this morning, here in a moment as we stand to sing, I invite you to come and do that right now. That you could leave this place knowing that you know that you belong to Jesus, that He has forgiven you, that He lives in your heart by His Spirit. If you're online or on the radio uh, listening to us and you have any questions about your relationship with Jesus Christ, please send us a message. Reach out to us. We want to help you know that you've got a vibrant relationship with Almighty God. And church, let us forsake the priorities and attitudes of this confused and chaotic world Let's cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and reject these enemies that seek to destroy us. There's no excuse for us to be ignorant, church. There's no excuse for us to be indifferent. There's no excuse for us to allow the the, the pleasures of this world and the entertainment distractions around us, the indulgences of this life to distract us and keep us from the Great Commission. Church, there's no excuse for impudence. Let's humble ourselves. Let's follow Jesus Christ and take up our cross and deny ourselves every single day. If we don't, we run the risk of ruining our witness and keeping people away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God has no reason to continue to bless us if we won't turn to Him. Whatever God has led on your heart this morning, as we stand to sing, I hope that you'll come. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, we are thankful for your word. Your word is true. All of it. We trust it. And we trust the picture that it gives us of who you are. You are a holy God. Almighty. The sovereign Lord of hosts. God of the angel armies. You are also a good, good father who loves us. And you do not desire to watch us perish, but you long for all to come to repentance. If there's anybody here today that needs to come to you in repentance, I pray they would do so.
there's anybody here, Father, you would have to unite with this church family to, to grow and to thrive here, to worship and to serve you. And this body of believers, I pray they would be obedient. And for every single one of us, God, help us to forsake these enemies. Help us to be on the watch for them. And help us to pursue you with everything that we are, with everything that we have, with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. In your name we pray. Amen.